0: If you would, please open God's word with me to Second Timothy, Timothy 2, 8 to 10. Let me just read this for you. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The Apostle Paul is writing from a context of suffering here. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from a dungeon cell. And he's there solely because of his witness for Christ. And so I want to speak to you about that this morning. I want to speak to you about how to prepare for suffering, how to prepare for suffering in particular for Christ's sake. I want to help prepare you to face suffering for Christ's sake as Paul did with conviction and with confidence. In the time that we live in right now, a letter like 2 Timothy isn't that popular on the bestsellers list. If, if you wrote a book today based on Paul's life, you might title it your worst life now. But that's okay. This is now, not eternally, right? And Or you might, might title it your trial-driven life, but that wouldn't make it to the bestseller list. But that's the Apostle Paul's testimony. That's his story. That's Actually, our heritage and our story also. I'm going to show you a little bit here about Paul's testimony and his story about suffering for Christ's sake. Look with me back in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, but we have, in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Here's Paul's testimony. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, but not perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, through our work, through our ministry. Verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. To the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says the most astounding thing in verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, Paul wrote this with deep conviction in the midst of suffering. And he wrote this with deep confidence in the midst of suffering. That his suffering was being used to reflect the glorious gospel of Christ and bring the elect to salvation. He said, I'm going through all these things, but I'm not crushed. I'm not perplexed. I'm not destroyed. This light momentary affliction is nothing to be compared to what's coming. That's why I'm suffering for the sake of the elect, as he wrote in 2 Timothy. Go back with me to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. We'll see him go a little further here in his testimony. And he writes this in verse 8 to Timothy. Who sees Paul suffering, who sees Paul facing persecution and death. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He is Christ's prisoner is what he's saying. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ. So don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid is what he's going to say later. But instead of being afraid or ashamed, he's going to say this in verse 8, "...but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed to be a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. To me, Paul had great confidence in the midst of his suffering. This is his testimony. His testimony is that all those who are called into ministry can have this kind of confidence as he's going through this kind of suffering. Because it's the power of God who's working through us. He's working through even our persecution, our suffering. And sovereignly, he's going to continue on this work after we're gone. This was Paul's conviction. This wasn't just Paul's conviction. This is also the Apostle Peter's conviction. And this is the Apostle Peter's testimony as well, his testimony of suffering. We see that in Acts. Go with me to Acts 5, 27. Something happens in both Peter's life and in Paul's life when they go through suffering for Christ's sake. And I want you to, to discern this. I want you to pick this up. You'll see it at the end of the passage. You'll see it at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy as we get there eventually. But here... In verse 27, this is after Peter has been arrested and he's been released by an angel, and he goes back to preaching the gospel. In verse 27 it says, And when they had brought them, that is Peter with the other men, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. When they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, that is the council, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thaddeus rose up, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then notice this in verse 41 and 42. Peter and the apostles Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Peter faced suffering and the threat of imprisonment and beatings for the sake of Christ. He kept on doing it. Because God had commanded him to it and and it was his honor to be counted worthy to suffer for his master. He faced this for Christ's sake like Paul and he rejoiced in it like Paul. Because there's an honor in suffering for Christ for being persecuted for righteousness. So my question before I even get started here this morning is. Are we prepared to rejoice in our suffering as Christ's witnesses? I would like to say yes, but I don't think I am. I want to say yes, but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened to this degree anyway. When it does happen here presently, I I want to be faithful and found worthy to be able to be persecuted for Christ's sake and rejoice in it. But sometimes I moan in it when it happens. But I want to be prepared to rejoice in my suffering for Christ's sake. And I want you to be prepared for that too. Because that's going to be our story to some degree or another. If we're faithful to his testimony, if we're faithful witnesses, we will suffer. If you want to live godly in this present age, you will suffer. That is a promise and it is something that should give us great confidence and cause us to have great conviction to preach the truth, declare the truth, share the truth, knowing that it is an honor To suffer for our master, like Paul and like Peter. Paul and Peter both knew that this is something that would happen to Christians. And so they they write in their epistles about suffering for the gospel's sake. They write it over and over again. And this morning, we're really not going to look at 2 Timothy. We're really going to look at 1 Peter. So we can understand the context of suffering for Christ's sake and being prepared for it. So go with me to 1 Peter now. 1 Peter 1. We'll just begin there. 1 Peter 1, 3. Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. The church scattered for their witness sake throughout this region. He writes to them in verse 3 and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, of your souls. In this little passage here, there is, there's amazing truth. Peter is telling us that God wants to assure us through our testing. He wants to purify us through our suffering for Christ's sake as believers. Verse 6 speaks of various trials. The word there, various, means variegated or multifaceted trials that help purify our faith in Christ. Now listen, some of these trials that he's talking about are just normal human trials that we face, yet turn us to Christ for strength and for hope. But in the context of 1 Peter, he is going to flesh that out some more and talk about the fact that you're going to be persecuted and face trials as witnesses for Christ in particular. In 1 Peter 4, go with me there, 4, this will be really our text this morning. In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, Peter refines the thought that we read in the first chapter. In this passage we're going to read here in a moment, Peter helps us prepare for suffering as Christ's witnesses. Listen to what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. means highly privileged because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter prepares us, I think this morning, for suffering in a way that will bring joy to our hearts. Peter prepares us by telling us that, number one, we should anticipate suffering for Christ's sake. We should anticipate it. Don't be surprised by it. Actually, be surprised if it doesn't happen, if you're a Christian. But the first thing he does is he wants to prepare them to anticipate suffering for Christ's sake. And secondly, Peter prepares us and his original hearers by telling them and us that we should celebrate suffering for Christ's sake. Now, we don't normally celebrate suffering, right? But in this context, we should and we should rejoice in it, he says. Because it's for the name of Jesus. And he says you're actually highly privileged to be his called out people sent into the world to be his witnesses. So celebrate When the anger of the world falls upon you because it's angry with Christ. Celebrate this. We should anticipate suffering for Christ's sake. We should celebrate suffering for Christ's sake. Not for sinfulness, but for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us that we should first anticipate suffering for Christ. He's preparing us to anticipate this. But remember that it will not destroy us. It is not meant to destroy us. Our suffering for Jesus is not meant to crush us. It's sent to purify us. It's sent to purify our hope in Christ. It's, it's sent to take our eyes off of the world and put our eyes on the prize, which is Jesus. Suffering simplifies everything, doesn't it? When I, when I have a headache... I used to get these really bad migraine headaches. When I have a headache, I may have had 14 things in my mind that I had to do that day. When my headache comes, I have one thing I need to do. I need to rest. I don't want to think about anything else. Nothing else is important but rest. Suffering has a way of whittling down the things that aren't important and pointing us to the one thing that is important. And so we need to rejoice in that. We need to anticipate it but understand that it's not meant to destroy us. Verse 12a, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you. He knows that God uses trials to test and assure us that we are his children and we will be his witnesses. In verse 9 of chapter 2 in Peter, he writes this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In this passage and in the passage there in chapter four, he's he's reminding them by calling them beloved. You are chosen of God. You are called by God. You belong to God. But here's why you belong to God. You belong to him in order that you can proclaim his excellencies in the world. And when you do this publicly, openly, you need to realize it's going to bring suffering at times. It's going to bring persecution. The testing of our faithfulness publicly, openly, the testing of our faithfulness is given as a means of grace to sanctify us. And when we're persecuted, it's a means of making us more reliant on Christ and more convinced that this is the truth worth living and dying for. That doesn't happen in the context of just peace and prosperity. That comes through suffering and persecution. We need suffering as Christians. God knows we need it, and God, in His grace, sends it. To test us, to test the genuineness of our faith. Is it built on Christ? Or are we trusting in ourselves? Suffering weans us from the world and from lust and from sin. It doesn't harm us as Christians. We are secure in Christ. Nothing's going to take that away, nothing's going to change that. But suffering can sanctify us. There's an old hymn, and in the, one of the lines in the hymn it says, The flame. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's what suffering does for us as Christians. If you're willing to profess Christ publicly, openly, evangelistically, and you suffer for it, and you do so with joy, God is at work in you displaying his grace through your life, and you can have assurance of your salvation when you go through these kinds of sufferings. Testing is not a strange thing for Christians. It's been part of God's plan from the beginning. It's normative for those that God loves. He uses trials to produce assurance and to sanctify our hearts. We see that happen in Peter's life. Go back with me to Luke's gospel. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus speaking to Peter, he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers there's just some assurance here for peter isn't there jesus said i prayed for you your faith will not fail and he gives him instructions about how true that prayer is by saying when this trial is over go strengthen those who need you go strengthen your brothers in other words, God says he is going to strengthen Peter through this test, this trial. Now, I know if it, if you were Peter and I were Peter and you hear Jesus say the first thing there in verse 31, you're thinking when you hear Satan ask for this, you said no, right? I mean, not going to happen, right? And Jesus could have said that. But instead he said, I prayed for you. I prayed for you through this, you're going to be honed, you're going to be sharpened, you're going to be purified, you're going to be able to serve others more faithfully through this testing of your faith, through your weakness being exposed, you're going to have compassion for those who are weak. It was better that Peter failed to have his sins exposed and to have his heart sanctified than if he would have went on in his own strength. And Christ knew that. We need to remember those trials are meant to do that. They're meant to to show what's underneath us, what's coming out of us. Purify us by raising to the top that which is impure so that Christ can skim it off. So that he can cleanse us. And even Jesus could understand what it meant to suffer under trials as a human. So he's able to relate this to us and tell us that we can suffer knowing that he has suffered in our place. He has went through this for us. We can have great confidence that his test was part of God's plan to save us. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we are tested. Jesus went through trials that were sent to him by the father, by God, the father. God, the father sent fiery trials into Jesus's life, did he not? Not. He sent them into Christ's life for our benefit. It says in Mark's gospel in chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. In Matthew, go with me to Matthew 26. We know that he is driven to the garden of Gethsemane to face a fiery trial on our behalf for our benefit here. And his suffering was sovereignly given for our salvation. Look what it says in 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane was known as a place of crushing. There was a, an olive press there. The olives would be placed in this press. This giant like millstone would be rolled around it. And, and Gethsemane was known as the place of crushing. Which is very interesting when you understand what's happening right here to Jesus. He's being beginning to feel the crushing of the father that Isaiah 53 talks about. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, Christ's suffering here isn't meant to purify him. Like suffering is meant to work in the Christian's life. No. Christ's suffering here is meant to purify us. His suffering assures us that our suffering will end one day. He faced suffering so that ours would cease. But until that day comes, we have to take the epistles of Peter and Paul and find comfort and rest. Because we're going to face suffering until that day comes. We're going to face suffering as Christians according to 1 Peter 4.12. Go back there with me. 1 Peter 4.12b, the latter half of the verse. Peter's going to tell us here that we shouldn't be surprised again by the suffering because it's really part of God's calling. God calls us to be his instruments, to be his witnesses. And that means he's calling us to be holy and separate from the world around us, this fallen humanity that's around us. They're going to see us as an offense. The gospel is an offense. And you are gospel proclaimers, gospel witnesses. Therefore, your witness will be offensive to a fallen and corrupt world as Christ was offensive to a fallen and corrupt world in his day. So he says in verse 12b, Don't be surprised by these fiery trials as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange for the Christian. Suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for being a witness of Christ is not a strange thing. It is something we need to be prepared for, though. In in verse 412, he's he's referring to the fiery trial again that he mentioned back there in the earlier passages that we read in in chapter 1. But... Fiery trials in context are related to all of chapter 4, the first 11 verses. The context of the first 11 verses is that of the witness of Christ's followers. They're living a holy life in a corrupt society. Therefore, he is saying to them, don't be surprised if they take up stones, if they persecute you, if you lose your job, if you lose your comforts. Your holy life is exposing their need of salvation. Your holy life is exposing sinfulness in the nation around us. Even the government may come against you, which it did consistently in the time of Peter, in the time of Paul. Again, that fiery trial points back to what he mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 1.7. Look what it says there. Here's the reason we don't need to be... Perplexed when suffering comes. He says, suffering for us as Christ, as Christ witnesses, is something that's meant to help us, not harm us. Verse 7 says that this testing is coming, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The true Faith that the Christian has sometimes is really not evident until suffering comes. It's kind of like a rose. You guys ever picked up a rose to smell of it? It smells wonderful, right? But it doesn't smell nearly as good as when you crush it in your hand and grind it down to nothing nearly, then smell of it. The true aroma of the rose comes out through the crushing. And that's what he's saying that these trials are meant to do. As, as we suffer for Christ's sake, it will refine us. It will purify us. It will bring out what's really down deep inside of us. This whole process of refining here that Peter uses is something they would be very familiar with in his day. In this process of refining gold, a smelter, a man who was called a smelter, he would, he would heat up the gold in a, in a vat, He would heat it up until the dross or the imperfections would rise to the top. He would heat it up. He would melt that gold, heat it up so hot that the imperfections would rise and separate from the gold. And then he would take and skim off the dross a little at a time so as not to lose any gold, but to skim off the lead, the imperfections, whatever may be there. Do that until all of the dross is removed so that the gold would be pure. And you know how he found out the gold was pure? He knew the gold was pure. It was through when he could look into the the vat and see a perfect reflection of himself. And that's what Christ is doing to us as he heats up suffering in our life. He's burning off the dross until he can see a perfect reflection of himself in us. Now, eventually that will come in glorification. But he's continuing this process until that day comes so that we would have a pure faith, a strong and convinced and and confident faith in what he is calling us to do as his witnesses. Church, we are the witnesses of Jesus, the Master, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the Sovereign One. We are his witnesses. We should long to be purified through his processes and rejoice in them. That's really what Peter teaches us in this passage. He teaches us that this kind of purification should cultivate some sort of celebration in the Christian's heart. We should celebrate because these trials, they're coming into our life to help us, to bring us this assurance that we belong to Jesus, that we're looking more and more like him as we see these things burned off in our life, and that we are more and more eager to tell others about his goodness, even if it costs us everything. Peter and Paul both knew that this was something we need to be prepared for. We shouldn't be surprised by. The whole context of Second Timothy is about Paul suffering yet saying, Timothy, step up. You can do it too. It is worth it. It is worth living and dying for Jesus to give your life to the ministry and be his witnesses. Church, we need to, we need to have that deep conviction. We need to let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also, right? All these things are, are things that need to be drossed in our life, that needs to be burned off. And sometimes suffering will do just that and make us see clearly what our calling is as followers of Jesus. And when you see your calling and you see your convictions cultivated through suffering, you begin to celebrate, as Peter says here, where he calls for us to celebrate suffering for Christ's sake in verses 13 and 14. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Sufferings, rejoicing, uh, they, they just don't seem like they go together, right? Yet he's saying here, if you really understand why you're suffering, it's for Christ. There is great joy in the midst of your persecutions, in the midst of your hardships. That's why Paul and Peter both are always filled with this abiding joy, even though their lives look really miserable from the outside. Inside, they have knowledge that their best life is not now, but it is coming. And in the meantime, they want to be faithful. They want to be witnesses for Jesus. They don't want to to do anything to bring shame upon his name. Paul says in one place, I discipline myself for godliness. He tells Timothy to do that. Everything about the man was centered around living for Christ. His job, his work, his ministry, everything he did was meant to make much of Jesus. I mean, Paul was a tent maker. Remember that he had a vocation. He had a vocation. So he knows what it means to be a man or a woman working in a field, working in an environment of unbelievers and needing to have confidence and conviction to stand firm in the truth, even if it costs you everything. Now, I think there's a way to do that without you being offensive. The gospel's offensive enough, but I think there's a way to do that in the context of your relationships that will actually allow you to speak truth to those people, like your neighbors, your co-workers, with deep and abiding conviction that will allow further conversations that will lead them to the gospel. So, Be prepared to do that. But you need to be celebrating over the fact that you may suffer in the midst of it. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's telling us celebrate suffering because it evidences that you're united to Christ. And one day it will evidence that externally. It's, It's in your heart internally. But one day he's saying, look, look, saints. Rejoice and be glad When his glory is revealed, he's talking about in the midst of suffering and in the future of glorification. He's talking about both. As you stand firm in the faith and you are suffering for Christ's sake, rejoice, rejoice and be glad because his glory will be there. He will be glorified in your suffering for his sake. And rejoice that one day he's coming to make manifest his love for us on the earth. He's going to come and we'll see his glory externally. And the glory of the church will be seen externally as we are gathered together with Christ, our Savior. He says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings externally, physically, Because you're not ashamed of the gospel. Because you're not ashamed of Jesus' name. When When you see that you're not ashamed, when you're able to stand firm, this will bring you great assurance and something to celebrate. When you know that standing firm for Jesus may cost you, and you do it anyway, that is the work of the Spirit in you. And you should rejoice and celebrate. That is the evidence of God's grace in your life at work. False converts will not go through suffering with joy and find assurance. Only those who are born again will stand and find in the midst of their standing when persecution comes that they have this abiding conviction and confidence that no matter what, I'm going to glorify Jesus. There in 4.13, Peter teaches us that this sharing in Christ's suffering is also temporary. It's not forever one day, the glory of Christ will come. The glorious one will come himself. And we need to remember that so that we can persevere, knowing that I want to be found doing his will when he comes. I want to celebrate his coming as, as I suffer for his name's sake. I, I, pray, I pray this for all of you, right? And Nate and I, I know, pray for you all the time. And here's what we pray for you a lot of times is, Lord, let them be found faithful to the end. Let them be found suffering for Christ's sake to the end. How about that? You want me to pray that one? That, that one I'm praying for you too. I, I, pray, I pray that on, on your last day that you go out glorifying Christ. Verbally, outwardly, internally. I pray that Jesus will be on our hearts and in our minds and coming out of our mouths all the time. He is worthy of that. And if you do that as a Christian, you must be prepared for suffering. People won't like you. People will reject you. But you have been accepted in Christ. Doesn't get any better than that. I don't need man's acceptance. Now, I don't want to be offensive intentionally. We know that. But I want to stand firmly with my feet placed on the rock of Christ Jesus. And I want to honor his name until I die. You want that. You pray for that. And Peter says you can rejoice, rejoice, and be glad when his glory is revealed through your suffering. The glory that he's talking about is not just future glory in the coming of Christ. He's actually talking about it in the context of actual physical, immediate persecution for Christ. And I think if you understand this in the in the Jewish minds. Uh, context, as Peter's writing as a Jewish man here, you would understand what he means by the word glory and be amazed. He's basically saying we have a foretaste of God's glory when we suffer for Christ's sake now. His future glory, yes, but also his present abiding glory will rest on us if we are suffering for the sake of Christ as his witnesses now. The, The word glory that he uses here, when used in the Old Testament, was speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. And here's what Israel was comforted by. When the Shekinah glory showed up, what did they have? They had protection. They had assurance that who is with them. God is with us. His glory is manifest. We see His glory. It reassured God's people that He was near. And in the New Testament... We are more assured that God is near. He is with us. He is with us. And Peter is saying his glory will even rest on us in the midst of our sufferings. He's speaking of the Shekinah glory, not in an outward manifestation, but inwardly. He's saying you will have the presence of God with you when you suffer for Jesus' sake. What an honor that is. I mean, it's it's one thing to know that God is omnipresent, but he's saying, no, look at this. I want you to know something. He is working internally to display his glory when you suffer for Christ's sake. We have an illustration of this in the book of Acts. But Let me read verse 14 first. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed or highly privileged. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because... The spirit of glory, the spirit of glory, Shekinah glory, Old Testament spoke of the Holy Spirit manifesting his presence with God's people. He's saying the spirit of glory and of God, speaking of the Holy Spirit and God, the father, because of Christ, your witness for Christ, it rests upon you. It rests upon you. So you are refreshed is what he's going to say. And what he's saying is we are promised in this suffering for Christ as his witnesses. We are promised God's rest, his refreshment, his peace, his presence when we are insulted for the name of Christ. Now, church, that's, that's intimate knowledge here that we have of God's plan for our suffering. We should be amazed by this. When we're insulted for Jesus' name, for being a follower of Christ, following his teaching by the way we live, by the way we speak. He's telling us that we can find hope in this. God's glorious peace and his presence is resting on us. He is near us. His Shekinah glory is resting on us to comfort us. He's not just purifying us. He is assuring us that we belong to him when you face suffering. His presence is there. You know He is there. You feel His presence in the midst of your suffering. There's an illustration of this in Acts 6. Go with me there. Acts 6. We have an illustration of what it looks like for this spirit of glory and of God resting on one who is a witness for Christ. We have a testimony of the man named Stephen. Six eight says this. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is is a partial testimony to what Peter was saying. The glory of God was resting on this man in the face of this coming persecution, suffering, and death. Look on over in chapter 7, verse 51. Understand this, between 6 and 7 here, the knowledge of his... Suffering that was to come didn't slow Stephen down a bit. It emboldened him. He began to proclaim a gospel message to the Jews that they would understand using the Old Testament to reveal Christ. And he brought them to this place of conviction here in verse 51. And then he rebukes them and he's calling for them to look to Christ. And he says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. In the midst of the suffering, this man was empowered by the Spirit to speak boldly, knowing that it would be costly. You don't say to a bunch of self-righteous, arrogant Religious men who believe that circumcision made you the holy people of God. You don't say to them, you're a bunch of uncircumcised men like the Gentiles. You don't say that unless the Spirit of God is directing you. Because to say that is to, at this time, inflict a death penalty on yourself. He says further in verse 52 Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, here's how they responded they didn't respond in repentance, they responded with persecution. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And it says in verse 55, but he, Stephen, full or empowered by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand Hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, when, when Saul, who later became Paul, began to talk about suffering, he was talking about it from the context of witnessing it and going through it himself. He was here, a party to this brutal execution of Stephen. And something happened to Stephen in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this death penalty laid upon him. He found the glory of God resting on him, did he not? He looks into heaven. He looks into heaven. There is this there's a supernatural thing that just happens here to Stephen. He's the only person that this is ever mentioned that actually happened to him in the New Testament. But the principle is still there for all who suffer for Christ's sake. Jesus is standing in heaven looking down on his servant who is a faithful witness for his name's sake, and he is there letting him know, I am with you, Stephen. This is the only place you find Jesus standing up after he ascended into glory and sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. He is standing up when his children are suffering. He is very, very interested in our suffering. And in that we should rejoice. And that should help comfort us and allow for us to understand this idea of the Shekinah glory resting on us. It's the glory of Christ. You're magnifying Jesus and he's being magnified through your suffering. That is supposed to give us great rest. It's supposed to comfort us and call us, I think, to celebrate whenever this comes into our life. I mean, do you count it an honor to be persecuted for Jesus? Have you been persecuted for Jesus? Are you being persecuted for Jesus' sake? Are you willing to suffer for Christ's sake? You can do so with conviction and with confidence and with joy. If you look at what he has done, if you look at what he has promised to do in using this to to cleanse us, to sanctify us and to testify to his greatness, to the world around us through us, broken jars of clay. He has chosen you, not just for heaven, he has chosen you for earth or you'd be in heaven now. He has chosen you to be his body, his witnesses here on this planet until he comes or you go home. Is that an honor to you? Is that something that stirs your heart? Is that something that causes you to prepare your mind to be his witnesses, to answer anyone who asks you about the hope that lies within you with fear and reverence, fear and gentleness, rather? I hope that's the case. I pray that you're willing to suffer for Christ's sake. And I'll just tell you this. If you're a Christian, you're going to do it. You're going to suffer for Christ's sake. Be prepared for it. I pray that you're willing to suffer. I pray that you are, in some degree, suffering now as a Christian for Christ's sake. But if you're not, you need to ask yourselves, why not? And I have my own answer for that, for me. I can't answer for you. I think the reason that I don't suffer often, for Christ's sake, is I can make lots of excuses not to be a witness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my failure to be a, a witness to others is on me. I can say things like, I'm too busy. I have a lot of work going on this week. Um, I'm not sure this person... Wants to talk to me at this time. Um, I I don't know that I'm able to answer all their questions. Um, They won't want to hear me if I give them the truth. Uh, It's going to cause controversy. I mean, I can think of list after list of things that I've used for an excuse not to be a faithful witness in many circumstances. You know, honestly, it's easy for me to be a witness right here. Hey, I I can speak boldly from this pulpit. But I'm just like you when it comes down to getting on a personal level with someone who I know is lost or agnostic or an atheist, you know they're they're not just lost they're they're finding ways to philosophically fill the void. and I know it's going to be time consuming and it's probably going to cost me something. time, possibly a job. I've had customers come in they're just they needed the gospel and there's the compromise in my heart to If I do that, he's not coming back. But he even opens the door for it, and there's still this sort of feeling that it's easier to compromise my witness when I I face things like rejection and hostility or persecution. And I'm just going to tell you what that is, that, that feeling. That feeling and that failure is related to this. I fear man more than I fear God. The fear of man robs me from celebrating what Peter is writing about here fear of man if I feared God as much as I feared my customers my friends my relatives then I am sure that I would speak with love the truth of the gospel to them more consistently more compassionately and even if it was going to cost me everything I would continue to do so because God has called me to that God has called you to that I think that's why we need the testimony that we have here in Peter and in Second Timothy, we need the testimony and the teaching of Peter and Paul regarding suffering for Christ's sake. Now, what I find humbling, I'm I'm going to close with this, I, I find humbling is the context in which he's writing, the people to whom he is writing. He's writing to people. He's writing to people who were so eager to follow Jesus that they were being driven out of their cities because they were his witnesses. He says they're elect exiles What's that tell us about our convictions? Are we are we are we this convinced that we would be driven out of our homes, out of our comfort zones, for the sake of Jesus' praise and the salvation of the lost? I think what's amazing is is as you look at this letter and and even Second Timothy, it's the same, you see the consistency of of people being moved to do radical things for Christ when they are born again. And these guys in, in Peter here, they live so much like Jesus that Peter's having to tell them, this hatred you're feeling for being godly, for living in a holy manner in this world, that that hatred is really being focused on you because they hate Christ whom you represent. You're his witnesses. We have to have the letter of First Peter. To comfort those who were so radical for Christ. That they they were suffering constantly. And Peter says it's okay. You're not being crushed by God. This is part of his plan to sanctify you. Don't you want that to be our testimony? Wouldn't it be great. On your headstone. That it, it is written. This. Man or woman. Loved Christ to death. This is. The testimony of the saints throughout history. This should be our testimony. But we need to be prepared for it. So here's something to maybe help you think about how to prepare for it anyway. Think about this. And ask yourself this question. Is is Jesus worth glorifying? That's the first question. Is Jesus worth magnifying? Is Jesus worth making much of? Not just in our hearts, not just in our church, but in the world. Is he worth it? Is he worth glorifying? And if so, are you willing to glorify him through your life, through your actions, through your words? If you know that God uses the gospel, the gospel proclamation and our suffering according to Peter and according to Paul, if you know that God uses that to call men to sanctification and call the lost to salvation, then that should move us past the fear of man so that we would speak the truth in love, no matter what it costs us. It should move us past the fear of man and we should learn to rather anticipate suffering, celebrate suffering, and embrace suffering for the name of Christ with joy. We should do it for the good of the lost. We should do it for the glory of God's name. We should even do it like Peter and Paul if it costs us everything. Because Christ is worthy. He suffered for us so that we could magnify his name on earth. Saints. Why do you think you're called saints? You're set apart to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved you. Be prepared when you do that that you will suffer, but it's for Christ's sake. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great martyr. Christ Jesus, our savior. Through his suffering, we are made righteous. We are being made righteous progressively. And through his suffering, we are secured We are glorified in the future because of Christ's accomplishments. and If he has done all of that for us, Lord, please allow us to be ready, willing and able to suffer for his namesake. Let us do this with joy and celebrate the honor of being a witness for Christ. God, I pray you would embolden us. I pray that this word that you've given us would strengthen our minds and our convictions and grant us confidence, even when things seem too hard to bear. When we face persecution and suffering, God, let us remember Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us give him glory by the way we live in this present age. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.